We are grateful that you're here this afternoon and the chance to study together for a few moments. I don't know if I've been my own worst enemy uh, when it comes to this lesson. I've been uh, postponing it and postponing it and mentioning it and mentioning it. And several have been excited and others have said, when are we ever going to get there? And so uh, I don't know that it'll be exciting as the buildup has been, but I hope that it's uh, encouraging for you as it's been for me in preparation. Um, I don't know if if I've said it, but we're actually going to go through two lessons uh, I was telling Don before service started just a few moments ago that uh, many of you know that this has come about because of our Book of the Month uh, club that we've called it, looking at a Bible book each month, and we've worked our way through the Old Testament. Now we've come to this uh, blank page, if you will, in your Bible, uh, and Chad Dollahide is the preacher down in Bremen, uh, Georgia, of course, co-director with us uh, at uh, our East Tennessee Bible Camp, and I'd gotten the idea from him. And uh, he did a lesson, one lesson on this, uh, on one Sunday evening, and it took about 55 minutes to get through it all. Uh, I said, I know my crowd better than that. I think I will uh, we'll do maybe break it up into two parts. Um, I was also telling uh, Miss Beverly and others during lunch, but uh, I usually give Hannah a hard time and a few others about, you know, bringing a drink in here uh, during the afternoon service, coffee or something, it's hard to stay awake, but I will gladly bring the cherry limeade in here if I can. Uh, uh, Miss Vicky's cherry limeade recipe is dear and great, and since they had it at lunch, I was trying not to give away how many cups I'd had already, uh, but uh, I said, I'll allow anything if I can, can have, have some of that up here. But um, we look forward to this study. Uh, we'll go through part of it this afternoon and really uh, make a few application points and then I will kind of warn you, I don't want to scare you off, but, but we may try to come back next week and talk about probably a little more of the historical aspect of some of this, which is a little less biblical, although certainly still, I guess, applicable as we think about its place in the history of the world and especially in our Bible. And so we are, have come to that spot in the history of Uh, Again, particularly the history of the Bible, I guess technically the history of the world. We have been talking for a while now about the history of Israel. And we have gone through what we've called a Sunday school catch-up. And this is some of the major divisions that we have looked at and kind of grouped things together. Again, Brother Roger Campbell in his book, uh, General Overview of the Bible, has he calls them mountain peak moments, mountain peak uh, parts of the Bible. And so Genesis is one, but in Genesis is included uh, creation and the flood and Joseph and Abraham and all these things. But that we might could say is one. We know then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and even into Joshua, it could be considered one part. And then the judges. And now you are to where we have been a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the United Kingdom. And then the divided kingdom will be next. The divided kingdom is when they divide into two different countries, two different kingdoms, if you will. And in that is when we start talking about this idea of captivity. And not just captivity, but then the restoration. So if you look at, if you can make out on the right side there, kind of grayed out in the box. But when you go through your Old Testament, you think about the last few books being Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. But earlier this year, because of the Bible Bowl with Lads to Leaders, we said, we went through a whole month on Ezra and Nehemiah. And we said that technically, Ezra and Nehemiah should be... pardon me, should be the last couple of books in your Bible if it were in order. Because 
in Ezra and Nehemiah, they are going to come out of captivity and they're going to start trying to rebuild and restore. You remember we talked about rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple. Hopefully that kind of uh, scratches your brain a little and maybe you can harken back to March or uh, February, March and April of earlier this year. But this is the way that it falls. And so even though all these minor prophets are the last few books, and they are written, written during this time, by history, Ezra and Nehemiah fall during this section as well. So they're carried away into captivity. After their captivity is over, they're going to go back home and start rebuilding and restore the nation of Israel. And then you come to that page in your Bible. And I've shown, showed you mine before, uh, but mine says the New Testament here on the right-hand side. And then I've written on the left-hand side the number of years because this is the blank space. Because when Malachi ends, there is what we call, and of course you may be familiar with the famous song, the sound of silence. There's going to be no word from God for a period of time. And there's a reason, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but this is what we sometimes call the sound of silence. And if we are talking about it, there are some other phrases that you'll hear. The phrase that I've continued to use in talking about it is the intertestamental period, between the testaments. Is of course, just maybe one opening or one page in your Bible, but certainly it's going to fill up a lot more than that. Some call it the silent years because God is no longer speaking to his people, to the children of Israel. And for some people, this might kind of shake their faith, if you will. Uh, we've been talking with the young adults, college age, young professionals kind of group on Sunday morning in our class. I've told you that we've been studying the plagues. And we've kind of worked our way through the plagues. And this morning we started a brief discussion on the idea of Pharaoh's hard heart. Do you remember that at least three, I think, if not four times, the Bible makes mention that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Is that backwards, didn't I? Hardens Pharaoh's heart. Anyways, and so some people look at that and they say, well, that's not right. God must work on people's heart. And we have to do a deeper study to understand exactly what that means. But it can kind of cause a problem. They say, well, does God work on us miraculously? Does he change our mind? Does he harden our heart? And the same thing is true here. Some people say, well, wait a minute. You mean there's 400 years that is sort of unaccounted for, if you will? It was silent. What was going on? What must have happened? There must be a problem in the Bible if there are this number of silent years. But I don't think that's the case. We can be encouraged to kind of study and to think about it a little bit. I think it would be beneficial for us. And so that's what we want to begin to do as we talk about the history of Israel and this period between the Testament. All right, I've already referred to it a few times and some of you know it because we've said it. But the amount of time that we're talking about is some 400 years. What we don't have and when it comes to this discussion is prophecy from God biblical words inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's, not, that's what we don't have, why we call it the silent years. What we do have is uninspired writings. If you've ever studied that or heard a preacher talk about it, you've heard the name Josephus. Josephus is a writer who was writing during this time and recording history. He's not inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's writing down the things that were happening during this period of time. So we can know, just like we can know what happened during the Civil War or during the Revolutionary War. Someone is writing down what occurred, and we can know that and study that, even if it's not 
you know, biblical or uh, inspired, as we say. And it is a long time. So there's going to be a lot of things that take place. And again, next week, we may kind of try to get into that a little bit more with history. So here's a fact we might say. Sacred scripture tells us nothing about the history of Israel during this time. All right. Now, you'll hear people that will talk about non-inspired books. You'll hear people that talk about all kinds of things that were written. Again, the writings of Josephus and others. And that's true. There were writings. But sacred scripture tells us nothing about the history of Israel during this time. I don't want it to shake your faith. I don't want it to cause problems to, to see that and to understand that. Even though it tells us nothing about history history of Israel during that time, it is still important for us to know. It is beneficial to think about the Bible as an entire story or an entire picture or an entire timeline, if you will. Uh, in fact, you know, I mentioned uh, this morning and we mentioned it on Wednesday night, I believe, in class, but if someone picked up the Bible, we said somebody could read and understand what God wants a person to do. We think that, you know, I believe that when you open it, it also helps us understand about placing membership with a group of people, a congregation, like we talked about this morning. I will, however, grant you, though, that if a person is reading through and they get to Malachi and they stop and they turn over to Matthew, they may be left scratching their head just a little bit. They may be left with some questions. Who are some of these people? Where do they come from? What happened to set the stage for Jesus to come here in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, when you open up to the New Testament there? What, what are we talking about? What does this mean? And what, uh, where did these people come from? And those kinds of questions. So this study can help us know that. It's important to know. I don't expect anyone, even as I've had to refresh myself, I don't expect any of you to have it all down, you know, to have it all memorized and have it all figured out. But I will challenge you that as you study some of these things and we go through them, you'll hear some things that you've heard before. Anybody ever heard of the Maccabees, right? A lot of people have heard that before. You've heard things, talks about Hanukkah and that kind of stuff. That, that came from somewhere. It doesn't have any connection to the Bible. That might be what we get into a little bit more next week, but it is, is helpful for us to know, even if you sat down and studied the Bible with someone and helped them understand what it meant to be obedient, to obey the gospel, to be baptized, you wouldn't go anywhere near this. I'll grant you that, but it can be important for us to know and to understand as we think about it. So let's talk about three main points this afternoon. Why is this important? Well, number one, it helps us to understand the context. This is kind of what I've already been touching on just a little bit. But if you open to Matthew and you say, well, who are these Jews? What, what are Jews? What do they have to do with anything? Who or what are Pharisees? You know, I always thought you, this name Sadducee sounds weird. What's a Sadducee? Where do they come from? All, all these names. Who are they? What are they? Where did they come from? Well, guess what? The origination, even though you've heard the preacher talk about them, on, when he talks about Jesus, he talks about who the Pharisees were. How does he know that? How do we figure any of that out? Well, it's because of this period. So we begin to learn about the context of the New Testament and especially Jesus coming into the world. So let's talk about this for just a moment. We're going to talk about it in two ways. The Jews' conditions and the Jews' religion. Number one, think about their conditions. When we close the Old Testament, they are under Persian rule. When you open the New Testament, they're part of the Roman Empire. Again, how do we get there? 
what happened? You know, what, what, what happened between these 400 years? Was there anyone else? Did anybody else rule the world during this time? Or was it just from the Medo-Persians and the Persians to the Romans? When we close the Old Testament, they are encircled, if you will, or harried by their enemies. They've been in captivity. There are people that are still trying to take their land and maybe, you know, take them over. But in the New Testament, we open up and they are protected by Rome. There, there's this nature, this idea that they have some protection for their law. Again, how do we get there? Number three, they are scantily populated, a scantily populated people during Old Testament. Go all the way back to March, I guess it was, but the study of Ezra and Nehemiah, how many returns were there? I stand out here so I can uh, quiz the kids. Anybody remember? At least three returns, right? They went back several times, and every time the group went back, what, what happened? Well, some stayed in captivity. So you've got people who are spread everywhere. It's not that they took an entire group and party and put them together and they all moved back home and that was it. They went in waves. Some folks stayed in captivity. And so that's the the deal. But when you get to the New Testament, they are densely populated and in this particular area. And then finally, uh, on this list of the idea of their conditions, think about their government. Think about their system. In the Old Testament, as we close during the time of Nehemiah, there's really no system of jurisprudence. In fact, that's part of the issues at the end of Nehemiah. What's going on? They're not listening to following God's word and what he's told them to do. But you open up the New Testament and pretty early on we read about the Sanhedrin and the effect that the Sanhedrin had on Jesus and on the trial of Jesus and all of that. And then you even bleed over into the book of Acts and you read about the Sanhedrin. Where did they come from? How did they pop up and we go from no system of government or of law to the powerful Sanhedrin, this group of rulers who ruled during this time? Let's talk about their religion for just a moment. Uh, In the Old Testament, there is an assumption regarding immortality. I think that's spelled correctly, immortality, right? There was this discussion people talked about. There's these allusions to the fact that we talk about eternity. But when you get to the New Testament, the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection right that's one of the discussions that jesus has with them they don't believe in the resurrection well how do we go from them believing this to not anymore that's something that changes there is synagogue worship in the old testament but it's relatively unknown it's not something that is common it's kind of come about because they are so spread out because they're spread everywhere then they're going to establish these synagogues But when you get to the New Testament, especially the book of Acts going forward, where is it that Paul is going to commonly go when when he's in Acts? He's going to travel to the synagogue. Why? Because everywhere you go, there's a synagogue. And there's a, a place to meet. And people are having this worship there. In the Old Testament, at the close of Nehemiah, I've mentioned this multiple times lately, but remember that the people thought the temple was inferior to Solomon. The old people, the older people cry. When they start rebuilding it because they remember Solomon's it's been destroyed they come back they rebuild and they are lamenting the fact that it wasn't what it once was but when you open up the New Testament there's even a third category of it's it's the best it's ever been it's better than it ever was before and so there's this timeline this gap between there for us to try to understand the crying of the older folks of it not being uh, the first one but then also now it is, it is very well to do, I guess, if you will, as you think about this. So there is this context to help us understand the Jews during this timeline and how they changed. 
and we'll understand a little bit more about that uh, not only next week here but in just a moment number two it helps us to understand prophecy it helps us to understand prophecy so we've not talked about your bible much uh, simply because we've said there's no scriptural references to these things but let's look at a few passages uh, first of all psalm 74 psalm 74 and verse number nine the intertestamental period enhances our appreciation for biblical prophecy in psalm 74 in verse number nine the psalmist is lamenting the fact that there is no word from god psalm 74 9 we do not see our signs there is no longer any prophet nor is there any among us who knows how long you see the cutting off of prophecy was punishment for their sins when they're going to go into captivity god is going to warn them this is part of your punishment when we think about before the cutting off of the prophecy they had prophets who could tell them what was going to happen they could say this is coming in the future and god says because you will not obey me no more that's not a luxury you're going to get anymore to hear a word of the lord because of your sin so i'm cutting off the prophecy go to amos forward to amos amos of course is near the end of the old testament amos obadiah there towards the end but amos chapter 8 verses 11 and 12 here's the prophecy about it no more prophecy amos 8 11 and 12 behold the days are coming says the lord god that i will send a famine on the land whoa god a famine is awful right no food but we have no bread that's not what he says not a famine of bread not a thirst for water but of hearing the words of the lord they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east they shall run to and fro seeking the word of the lord but shall not find it this is the promise this is the prophecy you know you've had it and you could find out in sometimes in some ways what was going on in the future but that's not going to happen anymore because of your sins. You will be like someone wandering. You will be like someone lost. In fact, here's the really interesting thing. And let me, let me tell you and let me see if you can understand the comparison, right? We've not got there yet. We'll talk about it next week. But one of the things that happens during the intertestamental period is the Jews take off in their prosperity. Their prosperity is going up. In fact, I didn't have room for it on the slide. I didn't get it in there. But one of the things, one of the difference in their conditions is they're pretty poor and scattered in the Old Testament. But you open up the New Testament and they're pretty rich, pretty wealthy. So what happens is their money, their financial prosperity is skyrocketing. But there's no word of the Lord. So what do you think is happening to their spirituality? And it starts plummeting, Right? There's no person to preach the word of God. So what happens is they start making more money, but their morality hits rock bottom. Our country's not perfect. I don't want to stand here in the middle of a sermon or every week and bash everyone and everything because, you know, there's certainly lots of sin in the world. We certainly have lots of work we can do as the church in lots of ways as well. But it is kind of interesting when there's no word from God a lot of times we might do better here on the earth in a financial sense, but we may be plummeting when it comes to spirituality. 
We understand prophecy a little bit better when we think about this idea of what's being said in Psalm, in the Psalm 74 in Amos. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, and then forward to Matthew chapter 11, it's interesting to think about Herod. Do you remember what takes place in Matthew chapter 2 when beginning in verse number 16 and going through verse number 23, really, what takes place in that section? My Bible calls it, as you've probably heard it called before, the massacre of the innocents. Why does that come about? Do you remember what Herod thought or what Herod was thinking? Herod says, I remember a prophecy about a Messiah. When the New Testament opens, we learn more about prophecy because, because Herod is saying there's an expectation of the Messiah. Herod says, I remember this prophecy, but you know what Herod wasn't doing? And really a lot of them weren't doing? They weren't reading their Bibles, right? It's not exactly the Bible in that case, but they weren't reading scripture. So they don't know the prophecy. He's like, I really can't remember what that prophecy said about that Messiah, but he's going to be born somewhere and we're going to find him and I want to get rid of him. And so we have the massacre of the innocents. And of course, John the baptizer in chapter 11, there's some discussion about this idea of prophecy, but we realize that they've been cut off. There's this silence. They don't remember and don't know. And that is, we, we begin to understand a little bit more about that when we look at this time period. And again, we'll dig into it a little more next week. All right, then number three, there is, it does help us to understand difficult passages. It helps us to understand some difficult passages. I'm very thankful that Brother Jerry made it back to us this week because Jerry and I often lo love to discuss the book of Daniel. When we think about the intertestamental period, it helps us to understand difficult passages. Now, I think that was the first Wednesday night class I ever taught here, Jerry, when I started. We, I, I, I made the mistake of saying I would do that, and you laughed at me a lot for saying I would do that because uh, it's a difficult book to teach. Do you know why? Because if you don't understand the intertestamental period, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you do study this time and think about it, and this is what we'll get into next week in a little more detail, we know more about it. In Daniel chapter 2, there is Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four kingdoms. There is the Babylonian kingdom. And then following on down from there, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans that are going to come about. And I forgot again to bring the poster in here. We've got a poster that uh, has been given, several have been given to the congregation here by house to house, heart to heart. Uh, but this discussion on Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the succession of these kingdoms. Now, I know you know that. We've talked about that recently. But go over to Daniel chapter 8 in case, in case you haven't looked at Daniel chapter 8 in a while. Daniel chapter 8 is the vision of a ram and a goat. And if you have not ever studied this period of history, you are very, very confused because it is sort of difficult to understand why a ram and a goat are being discussed, why they are butting heads, if you will, and having this problem. The ram represents the Medo-Persians. Again, this next kingdom that's going to come about, and the goat is going to rep represent Alexander the Great. Now, you start talking about Alexander the Great, and some folks go, oh, I remember him. I studied him in history in school. We talked about Alexander the Great. I won't 
I won't make anybody answer this afternoon, but I would really test you on your history a little bit. In Daniel chapter 8, that goat has four horns, right? If you look, read down through there, and it's a really weird picture. And if you go and you look at it, uh, then you can see where it's, you know, some people have made pictures of what it might have looked like. And in verse number 8, the large horn was broken, and in its place there are four notable horns that come up out of this goat. Daniel chapter 8 and verse number 8. Well, if you remember your history, this is where I I was going to challenge you, but Alexander the Great dies and his kingdom goes to four of his generals. Well, if I'm just reading through Daniel chapter 8, I think somebody's got some really weird dreams that they've just been having and they don't understand what's going on. If I know about this intertestamental period and I understand about Alexander the Great, now Daniel is talking about some interesting things that really make sense. These chapters don't make sense without knowing this history. Chapters 2 and 8 talk about the four empires or the four kingdoms. And chapter 11 is a step-by-step through the Syrian wars. There's the northern king, if you turn over to chapter 11, the southern king, there are these wars that are going on. This is a step-by-step through the Syrian wars of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Now, that, now we're getting really historical, but that is part of this here because it helps us to understand these difficult passages. A person could read Daniel time and time again and maybe be left scratching their head, but when you kind of connect it, Uh, as a future thing here, then it is very helpful to us to truly, truly understand this picture. The theme of this study, we might say, and we're going to stop here for this afternoon, but the theme of this study, we might say, is the fullness of time. Now, if you notice on the screen there, that is a quote from Galatians 4.4, and we spent all of last Sunday in Galatians 4. What we didn't do is focus on this phrase, the fullness of time. But you've often, I think I've even preached a sermon on this before, what the fullness of time that Paul is talking about there in Galatians 4 is the idea, of course, that Jesus came at just the right time. The perfect time Jesus came into the world. Who could do that? Not me, not any man, but God could. Well, what made it the right time? Well, I'm going to go ahead and say to you that I can't tell you fully. I'm not God. I don't know for sure this is 100% exactly why. But what we'll try to do next Sunday afternoon, God be willing, is dig into a little bit of what appears, things that make some sense to help us understand why that was the perfect time. We talked last week about the bondage, right? They were in bondage in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time. Only God could know. Somebody says, well, why are there 400 years of silence? Why didn't he send Jesus before? All I know is what Paul said. And all I know is what I can tell you. I think that when we look at history, there's some pretty good reasons, maybe. Some things that were perfectly in place to help us understand. Daniel chapter 2 that we just talked about says... That, it's going, that, that the kingdom is going to be established during the Roman era. That fourth kingdom that would come, that, that's going to be when the kingdom would be established. That's the Roman era. That's the fullness of time. That's when Jesus came. 
I'm, I'm going to have to just say it and then leave you hanging a little bit. But in Daniel chapter 9, there's the prophecy of the 70 weeks. That's some heavy stuff. Maybe we need to talk about that some other time. But in that, Daniel is able to prophesy the exact year that Jesus would be crucified. Daniel's able to do that. Why? By prophecy. By the power of God because of the fullness of time. That is the theme of this study, and we will kind of uh, flesh that out a little more next week. The sound of silence. How awful it is that they're not able to hear a word from the Lord. How awful it is that he has to cut off prophecy because of their sins. But how encouraging it can be for us to still study that. To think about it and begin to see how it helps us understand biblical prophecy. It helps us understand the context. It helps us to understand even the providence of God. See, that was a free one. I didn't have room to get into the bulletin there. But it also helps us understand the providence of God. The providence of God is he knows the right time that I don't know. He knows that things happen when he is prepared for them to happen, including when the fullness of time arrived and Jesus came into the world, born of a woman so that we could be saved from our sins to redeem us from being under the law, as Paul talks about there in Galatians chapter 4. I know it's a lot, and again, for some of you it's very interesting, others it may be a little heavy to consider, uh, but I think it is beneficial as we've already outlined this afternoon. Uh, but we are going to pause there and conclude this lesson and extend heaven's invitation. As we are assembled together, we're thankful for this time to even sing a song here at the end of this particular service to encourage you. Maybe you're here and you've never been obedient to the plan of salvation. We sing to encourage you that you would do that this day if you would like to or if you'd like to study with us. We would do that as soon as possible, working through what Scripture has to say about how a person can be saved from their sins and be on the path to heaven above. But as many, many, many of us in this room can attest to, it's hard. It's not easy to stay on that path. So we fall away. We allow sin to enter our life. If you're here this afternoon, there's sin in your life that you would like to be forgiven of. You can make that known before God, certainly first and foremost, but even before your brothers and sisters so we can pray with you and for you. Maybe you're here and struggling with something, as we mentioned this morning, one of the great benefits of being a part of a congregation is allowing folks to pray with you and for you. We love you, and we'd love to do that even now as we stand together and as we sing.